I would love to see artist communities really benefiting in rich, complex ways from the interconnectedness. Thanks to each and every one of you joining us. Welcome to Questioning Artists, a podcast where we believe that inquiry and art making are both essential parts of life, and so we invite you to listen as artists share fascinating and thoughtful responses to questions about their origins, their training and mentors, their art making, and what lights their inspirational fires. I'm your host, Kate Michael Gibson. I'm an artist who wears many hats, including writer, producer, performer, story maker, and now podcaster. I'm a founding member of Convergence's Theater Collective. CTC is a group of pioneering theater artists and innovative teachers dedicated to creating original work and re-envisioning classics. And in 2018, we turned 10. As part of our 10-year anniversary, we are exploring how to tell CTC's story in multiple ways, through the voices of our amazing collaborating artists. This podcast is inspired by that storytelling idea, as well as by a dream I had about sitting down to talk one-on-one with the many amazing and talented artists I know. I was inspired by other folks doing wonderful things with podcasts, especially storytelling shows. I found that hearing firsthand from brave and honest people sharing themselves openly and with vulnerability was not only deeply moving, and educational and inspirational, it was a source of real human connection for me. Since I've always adored art and art makers, this show combines three of my longtime loves, artists, CTC, and personal storytelling. On today's episode, I'm tremendously excited to sit down with my friend and colleague, Kate Kohler Amory. Kate is a founding artist of CTC and a brilliant, multifaceted theater maker. We talk about the importance of vision, how collaboration creates better work, and what it takes to build a stronger, more vibrant, and supported theater in the U.S. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm excited to get into our conversation today. So we're both founding artists of CTC, and we've known each other a long time now. So I've gotten to know you through our work, and I am so curious to learn more. Tell us about yourself and your artistic practices. My name is Kate Kohler Amory, and I consider myself a a theater maker. uh, And under that guise, I wear many hats. I am an actor and a choreographer and a writer and a director and a, a moment maker and a um, visual artist and a poet. Uh, and so 
depending on the project, I uh, could do any number of of things. But I think the commonality in all that I do is that I I tend to be driven by a vision. Okay, so you mentioned that in your exploration as an artist, your work is driven by a vision. For me, vision is often a question or an image that drives this creation of a new piece. Can you unpack what you mean by vision for us? Most projects that I work on, uh, certainly where I have a lot of creative agency over them, tend to be uh, driven by a subject I want to investigate or an injustice that I want to bring light to or uh, something I just feel that needs to be said really profoundly and that tends to arrive for me uh, in a set of questions and around that question arises a vision of how this might start to take shape. So I go about starting to investigate uh, and that investigation can, can take many, many, many different guises but generally I'm driven by wanting to understand something better or examine it more closely. I love how exploration and examination are such big parts of how you make theater. Speaking of support, in CTC, our producing efforts are guided by a developmental movement principle, support precedes movement. Support for our work as artists shows up in so many ways. One of the biggest forms of support in CTC is coming together to support each other's artistic visions through collaboration. And I love working collaboratively, so I would love to hear your perspective on collaborative art making. I think fundamentally I went into the theater because I didn't want to be alone in a studio the way that my mother was and the way that I felt as a child uh, able to create worlds with with art materials or even with my, I mean I had this dollhouse that uh, was built by my great, my grandfather who was a carpenter and my great grandfather who was actually a master carpenter. Um, and, uh, and I had, I spent hours as a child making up stories and giving voices to all the different characters in the dollhouse and, you know, different animals. And, and I had a very rich imagination as a child and imaginary life and you know, imaginary friends and whole stories that I would um, play out. And I think in some ways that was very lonely for me. I mean, they kept me good company and I, I valued them a lot. Um, but I always had this longing to be part of something big and more m more populated <laughs> with other people and so there's also something I think about empathy for, for me around that like and some also um, confirmation not exactly validation it's not that I need someone to validate my creative choices but it's nice to have them confirmed to be to be experienced and witnessed and acknowledged by an artistic collaborator. I really love that process. I mean, even now, when I'm 
uh, I'm, I'm doing an adaptation. I'm directing an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream in Boston in the spring. And you know, my some of my favorite parts of the process are these early meetings with with designers where we're planning how we're going to devise because we're going to begin with devising around the, the different worlds in that play. And, and rather than starting with the text, we're starting with how do we create the world that these people inhabit. And so it's, it's not that far from my dollhouse, really. It's just that um, I have other playmates to come along with me on that journey. And I suggest something, and they get excited. And they say, oh, yeah, 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 what about birch bark? And I go, oh, I love birch bark. And uh, I say, yes, let's hang birch bark. And, and then they go, oh, and then we, we, could, we could have vines of leaves, and I go, yes, I love vines of leaves. <laughs> you know, and then they start to materialize a world that's in my head and their head, and then I start to see it, and that shared vision is a kind of creative empathy that I think is probably why I do this at all. It's probably why I still continue to make work, is that there's something very affirming about that process. So that's the sort of psychological part. And then I would just say from an artistic perspective, it just makes work better. It makes art better. I think we're better together than we are solo. I mean, I think I'm a better artist when I bang up against the um, ideas and also the resistances of my of my colleagues. You know, I, I mean, sometimes when Jeremy and I are working, there's a lot of conflict contention. Um, I mean, we have a strong enough relationship that we can we can walk through that uh, fairly gracefully. But we don't always agree. And you know, sometimes I want something one way, and he will say, "Absolutely, it can't be that way." And then I have to go, "Oh, okay," and I have to solve the problem some other way, which makes it better. It's a little bit like being forged in a fire. <laughs> if I'm left mm-hmm. to my own devices, it can all become a little bit indulgent and, and a little comfortable. <laughs> yes, not only does it make the piece better and more rich for the audience, it also makes it easier for us as makers because we have energetic support around our idea or vision as we're developing it. Everybody's working towards the same goal together. You mentioned Jeremy Williams as a collaborator. I'd love to hear more about your work together and how that led to you becoming a co-founder of CTC. So I would say Ghost of Troy was kind of a, a, a seminal moment in Jeremy and I learning how to collaborate and work together over time successfully. And out of that, there was there were a couple of other small projects with yellow wallpaper that we did at um, Culture Project at the um, Women's Center Stage Festival. Uh, which was initiated uh, by Rebecca Holderness, but that we all collaborated together on that. And then, but I performed it. And then I also did a piece called Punk Rock Motherfucker, The Disidentified Mother, uh, which Jeremy and I worked on together, um, but only had, uh, it only performed once, uh, I guess, well, several times over one week. Um, uh, but again, that was sort of a, a smaller, it was a solo piece. It was 40 minutes long, I think, that I did. And then from and out of that, 
we started to work on refracting Miss Julie. Like we started to decide we wanted to put together something more significant. And I had played Miss Julie in the play Miss Julie several times. And I, I had a really strong desire to, to answer her back. And that's what the background is beginning yeah. about saying, you know, that, the, the, that I usually start with a vision. Like I need to say something. And what I wanted to say was that Miss Julie shouldn't have to die in, in the new millennia. She should be able yeah. to live. <laughs> Refracting Miss Julie was the first project you and I worked on together. And it was the first, one of the first times I've ever devised in such a way, taking inspiration from a classic and creating a new piece, which reflects our current culture. Did you start your career devising new work from classics? I'd love to know how you found your path to becoming a professional theater artist. So when I was 16, I had already been working a whole bunch by that time in Philadelphia as a professional actor and as a child professional actor and I I knew that I wanted to do Shakespeare and uh, and so at 16 I applied to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London their uh, Shakespeare training program and got accepted and so I went on my own with the intention of going for that and Staying to to do their three-year training program because uh, the first mm -hmm. program I went was a summer training program and at 16 that sort of seemed like the first step for me uh, was to just get there and I managed to actually get in and start the three-year training program uh, but it turned out I was too young to be there. And so uh, by that time I was 17 and the, uh, at the time my teacher, uh, Nick Barter, who was my acting teacher in the Shakespeare program, who was also a director at the National Theater, he suggested I actually go to college because I was so young and I had done nothing but theater because I went to a performing arts high school in Philadelphia as well. So I had been very single-minded and single-focused for a while and, and, and Nick suggested that maybe I would want to get a broader education so that I could be an intelligent actor and have something to say, which at 17 I wasn't really that interested. But in hindsight, he was very wise. He suggested I apply to a program at Goldsmiths College at University of London rather than be at a conservatory where I would continue my single focus. And so I agreed and I applied and I got into the Goldsmiths BFA program or their BA honors is what they call it program. And uh, I really went begrudgingly. I really didn't think I wanted to do what they were doing. I didn't think I wanted to learn what they were teaching, but I went mm -hmm. and uh, and it changed everything for me. It just, it changed the whole trajectory of my life because uh, I had faculty who were 
making solo work. I had we our first production as freshmen, we made a device piece with someone from Carol Churchill Theater Company. We did a Howard Barker play. Some people did um, happenings, and I, I mean, it was I, I went as part of that program. I went to Amsterdam and studied with members of the Polish Theater Lab, and that was my beginning of uh, my Grotowski relationship, which is now what I teach. So it's gone on my whole life, um, and and I just kept saying to people, but I just want to be like auditioning for Cats. Like I don't know why I'm here. Like, why I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to just be a West End actor. I didn't want to change the world. I thought once I had been empowered as an artist to think creatively about what we were making, it was such a natural fit. It was, it was, the, it was the natural continuation for me of my all of my artistic. Uh, delights as a child they were just mm-hmm. I could do it in 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 a, in a really large scale on a stage my first experience would be that freshman show that we did that was a smaller piece I mean it was maybe uh, I guess maybe it was an hour length show in the end and we were we were learning about devising and devising techniques. It, my class at Goldsmiths, our senior year, we did a year-long project with uh, another person from Carol Churchill's company who came and did devising with us in the fall, and we developed characters and. Uh, context and story. It was this was all at the. Uh, gosh, this would have been 1993. So this was not long after the end of the Soviet Union and the beginning of the EU. This was before the official European Union was formed. But within the forming, the period of forming the European Union, and so we did a piece uh, that was set in Eastern Europe. Uh, not too dissimilar to Carol Churchill's Black Forest, but we didn't get to go there. Uh, so we devised characters in a story and a context, and then the director, the guest artist director, went away over the break, wrote a play, came back, rehearsed it with us, and that was our final senior project. Like that was our main stage performance the spring of my senior year. And I got to play the lead role in that production, uh, who was an American in Europe trying to start a business in the new eastern new, you know, countries, eastern countries that were growing in their capitalism. That was probably my first experience of beginning to end full length, fully fully realized, devised to scripted to full performance project. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me that you were exposed to the process of devising new work very early on in your artistic career, which explains why you're one of the most experienced artists I know devising new work. No wonder you're so good at what you do. I want to switch perspectives for a minute and ask you to put on your teacher hat. What are your hopes for emerging and future theater makers? I... I would love to see artist communities 
really benefiting in rich, complex ways from the interconnectedness that the that social media and the internet provides. And I don't know that that's really manifesting quite yet. And I I look forward to that. I still feel awfully isolated in in the art making process. And so I think we're in a liminal space between what was where somehow it was possible for artists to hang out in a room together for long periods of time and experiment and explore and make things with some foundation support or institutional support or you know there, there there used to be ways that companies could exist or at least in my experience where they could exist and explore making something without this pressure of it having to be the next big thing tomorrow um, and so all of the sort of funding and the outlets for that are are disappearing but it hasn't quite been replaced yet with the ability to connect in other meaningful ways. I feel like we're a little siloed in our Facebook groups at the moment. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to somehow finding, and I think that's part, this is an exciting conversation that you're starting, and, and I think Hal Round is doing a lot of good work, and you know, I, I know there's a lot of really great people trying to work on this. So I look forward to what that looks like 10 years from now. Me too. So creating and developing a new play takes a lot of time and space, which is why it's so important to have institutional support. How have institutions supported your work recently? Jeremy and I collaborated on a project that I did at Salem State that wasn't officially a CTC production, The Ghosts of Troy. So story of book 11 of the Odyssey when Odysseus goes into the underworld. Uh, so Jeremy and I worked pretty closely. I brought him in as a guest artist uh, twice on that project, uh, which was actually a very similar model to the one I had done at Goldsmiths, where we, we developed and devised uh, in the fall. Like first I did training on devising, and then myself and a group of actors uh, and Jeremy, when he could come up, devise characters and storylines, pick events in the story that we really wanted to flesh out. Then over the winter break, I wrote day and night for three weeks, <laughs> wrote a play, and then came back, and then we rehearsed it and performed it. Uh, we had four weeks of rehearsal, and then we performed it for two weeks. Uh, and so that was the first project that Jeremy and I worked on from scratch, beginning to end. And it really helped. I bring it up because actually, I, I think that the thing that made it possible was the institutional support of the university. And I do find that it's really difficult in the world that we live in to do this kind of work in a consumer art model. And so if you're, or even the traditional nonprofit theater company model, because there's not enough support for the development stages of the work, and then everything gets rushed and condensed, and it doesn't have enough time to percolate or germinate. Mm -hmm. So either the work 
kills all the artists because you're trying to make it in, in an unrealistic, condensed fashion and you're burning everybody out or you just don't have the resources for the stuff or the place or the space or you're doing it on a floor that's inappropriate or you're doing it above, you know, a pizza shop that's louder. I mean, you, the exigencies of making original work in New York are sometimes insurmountable. And the institutional support that a university provides actually, I mean, I do think that's, for example, why Mary Zimmerman is able to do the work she does because she has the support of, I think it's Northwestern. Um, but these these projects that are, are long and large in scope either need a tremendous amount of, of financial support from donors and fellowships and so forth, uh, or they they need some other institution to support it. So, how do we create a stronger, more vibrant, and supported theater? I have lots of thoughts about this, and I think it's a very important dialogue. And I actually think it's evolving because our world is changing so fast. And in some ways, we are more inundated with story than we ever have been in human history. And we spend more time experiencing the, the reality of fiction. Um, and, and narratives are offered to us all over the place, all day long. If you think about, for example, the difference between that and Elizabethan England, or um, uh, you know, any other you know, early America or um, ancient Greece, you know, there's, there's, I mean, in some ways we're, we're, we're so spoiled by uh, the richness of narrative and story and the work of artists in our lives. I mean, everything we do is a product of an artist in some way at this point. Some designer, some artist, some creative person has made something we use all day long. And, um, and that's really wonderful. And I think in the saturation of a kind of superficial, and I don't mean superficial as in unimportant, I mean superficial as in surface level contact with that sea of narrative and story in our lives and the commodification of story that the authentic human relationship of one to another, the origin of our of our storytelling, the therapons, the the you know, the the where theater comes from, the Greek therapont who interpreted your dreams and helped you tell them to the community for the benefit of the community, you know, in a live in, interpersonal communicating uh, context. You know that campfire storytelling experience 
is getting lost, I think, and to some degree. I mean, this sounds very arrogant to say when I hear it out loud, but there's something about the importance of the, the human experience resonating and vibrating in real time, in real space, uh, that's getting, in some ways, harder. Harder to sit through, harder to show up for, harder to get off your phone to experience, um, harder to tolerate the, the resonance of it. Uh, and so I think now more than ever, it's so important to train theater artists to be live storytellers. Speaking of live storytellers, let's talk about some of the storytellers you've collaborated and trained with over the years. I moved to the U.S. and hmm. developed a relationship after a little bit of kind of figuring out where in the U.S. I was going to be. I hadn't lived in the U.S. in a long time by that point. So I figured out that Shakespeare and Company was a, a good fit for me artistically and allowed me to use all of the skills I had developed as an actor doing Shakespeare. And that the, the work they were doing with Shakespeare was still, I wouldn't say it was devising at all uh, or even adapting, mm -hmm. but um, it was bringing a really contemporary voice to Shakespeare and making it really relevant for audiences. And, and I found that incredibly compelling. So I hung out for a few years around Shakespeare and Company, working with them, training with them as an actor, training with them then as a teacher, then working for them as a teacher. But meanwhile, I had moved to New York City, and, uh, and there was a group of artists who had a relationship both with the Experimental Theater Wing in New York and Shakespeare and Company. And so through my Shakespeare and Company relationship, I developed uh, a relationship with a fair amount of people from the Experimental Theater Wing. And we founded, well, there was a group of faculty from ETW who were in the process of founding a company. And I joined as a sort of ground floor of that. They, they had done one production in before and were coalescing around the idea of starting an actual company and invited me to participate in that. And so that was Holderness Theater Company and Rebecca Holderness was the artistic mm -hmm. director of that and it was both a Shakespeare and Company director and an experimental theater wing faculty. Uh, and that began my relationship with many, many divisors of many kinds and began my my long, many years long, easily 17 years long now, work with Steve Long, uh, who's now retired from the Experimental Theater Wing. Uh, but in that company, in Holderness Theater Company, we adapted classics. We like to call it uh, radical neoclassicism. We wildly adapted classics and, and performed new works. Um, I wouldn't say that we were doing a lot of raw devising from the ground up. 
but we were definitely bringing all the devising techniques to interpreting mm -hmm. playwrights' works. And so I think that, and that was what led me to Naropa, uh, all of my years at Holderness Theater Company, which was about a decade. A whole bunch of those people from ETW then went to start the contemporary theater program at Naropa. And so essentially being abandoned by my company members who all went to Colorado, I went with them. I followed them to Naropa. Um, and that was where um, the, the technique cemented of, of fully generating something out of nothing with viewpoints or moment work or the, I also use the frantic assembly uh, kind of model of devising, which is really like the British, like the work I did at Goldsmiths is very like that. So, so with all of those techniques and approaches in my wheelhouse, I, I now I pretty much like to just make my own work. Now let's take it all the way back. Tell us about your childhood and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in uh, rural New Jersey uh, as a child and in the southern part, the Garden State part, uh, where uh, we lived pretty far uh, down a rural road across from a lake, uh, sandwiched in between a dairy farm and a, a state park. And so um, I had a very kind of... Um, almost wild upbringing in the, in the sense of uh, spending a, a tremendous amount of time in my childhood outdoors. And mm -hmm. uh, my mother was a sculptor and had a giant studio built off of our house where she submerged each morning with coffee and cigarettes and spent the day making sculpture. Mm -hmm. Uh, much of it on a very large scale and um, then would sort of emerge sometime uh, around dinner time um, and sometimes not at all, sometimes would work right up until uh, the end of the day. So she was a very driven, passionate uh, visual artist and she, her medium was glass art and um, most of it from a very uh, feminist perspective. She was also a scholar on ancient goddess religions and artifacts. Mm. And so much of her sculpture was in a modern medium of fused and blown glass, modern art artifacts in a way. Um, mm -hmm. And she traveled a lot uh, learning about ancient cultures and taught many times in Turkey and in Africa and Hungary and um, various places that also really inspired her. So I was surrounded as a child by this very rural outdoor experience and then a very intense artistic home. And I also attended art classes, visual art classes for most of my childhood. Uh, and, uh, and my mother would always tell this story of um, how there was never a, a babysitter for me. So I sat on the floor of her studio with clay, just, you know, little naked 
infant, you know, playing with clay and different materials, <laughs> and that um, at the end of the day she would pick me up and wash me off, and off I would go. Uh, but I spent the whole beginning of my life making things, and whether it was kind of mud pies outside or clay sculpture inside, I I developed both a, a real affinity for making things out of nothing and also uh, for seeing things in a visual way, a uh, visual landscape. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the viewpoints has always resonated so strongly for me is that also at Mary Overly as a painter, you know, thinks very visually, compositionally and, and I, 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 I now am aware because of the number of years I've now been directing that I very much compose in space. That just like a direct transfer of both of those things of making yeah. things with my hands and painting pictures in space. Like both of those things are very much related to how I how I make theater. Did you always know that you wanted to be a theater artist? Or? I always knew that I wanted to do theater, and uh, it, it's actually always been a question of mine in adulthood whether it was that my family told me that I was an actress. And therefore, I became one, or that I wanted to be one, and they they went along with it. But the story in my family was that from the age of uh, two on, I started to proclaim that I was an actress and that I would grow up to be an actress. So there really isn't very much pre-verbal time before that. <laughs> I really, I came out right. determined to to do this thing that I understood as theater. I think it got very it, it crystallized for me at a moment when um, my mother took me to uh, so the nearest city to us was Philadelphia. Both of my parents were originally from Philadelphia, and my mother went to art school in Philadelphia. So she that was where her gallery, the gallery that built her work, and many of her friends were. So we spent a lot of time going to cultural events in Philadelphia, and there was um, a tour of the Royal Shakespeare Company, The Tempest, that came to University of Pennsylvania, Annenberg Center. And I, I think I was maybe six. I was, I was six or seven. Uh, and it was the first, it wasn't the first play I had seen, but it was definitely the first play of that caliber and magnitude that I'd seen. And it was definitely the first Shakespeare I had seen. And it's mm -hmm. actually my earliest memory is that I remember Prospero from mm -hmm. that production. I still have visual images in my mind of of the things I saw that day. And from that moment on, it was absolutely cinched that that's what I would do with my life, is that I would I would do Shakespeare and I would do Shakespeare on that scale and with that level of... Um, rigor and uh, mastery of language and spectacle. Uh, it, it was, it completely transported me. And I have pursued that experience a million times since. <laughs> but I remember so mm -hmm. clearly at that moment. So that was really the launch. So I we came home and I said, well, I want to do that. And I was relentless about it. And so my mother found mm -hmm. me an acting coach 
uh, she was a former Broadway actress, and so I ended up doing coaching with her and and then found an opportunity to uh, to do some local theater and um, we also had a summer home on the on the shore on the Jersey shore and mm-hmm. uh, which was right next to Atlantic City and so when I want to say I was 12, uh, I was cast in my first professional production. It was a musical in Atlantic City. But it ran for a summer. It was a summer stock kind of theater. And after that, I there was just nothing else in the world for me, <laughs> nothing that had any interest. But I very much saw myself as an actor for a long time. I didn't. I didn't come to think of myself more as a theater artist until until much later. Your story of playing with Clay as a little baby totally resonates with me. My dad was an artist and his main medium was clay, so I spent a lot of time playing with clay and making things as a little kid. It's funny how our early experiences with art really shape us. Speaking of shaping the future... How do you see the world of theater changing? I have lots of thoughts about this, and I think it's a very important dialogue. And I actually think it's evolving because our world is changing so fast. And in some ways, we are more inundated with story than we ever have been in human history. And we spend more time experiencing the the reality of fiction um, and, and narratives are offered to us all over the place all day long. If you think about, for example, the difference between that and Elizabethan England or um, uh, you know any other you know early America or um, ancient Greece. You know, there's, there's. I mean, in some ways, we're 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 so spoiled by uh, the richness of narrative and story and the work of artists in our lives. I mean, everything we do is a product of an artist in some way at this point. Some designer, some artist, some creative person has made something we use all day long. And um, and that's really wonderful. And I think in the saturation of a kind of superficial, and I don't mean superficial as in unimportant, I mean superficial as in surface level, contact with that sea of narrative and story in our lives and the commodification of story that the authentic human relationship of one to another, the origin of our of our storytelling, the therapont, the the you know, the, the, where theater comes from, the Greek Therapont who interpreted your dreams and 
how can you tell them to the community for the benefit of the community in a, in a live, in, interpersonal, communicating uh, context? You know, that campfire storytelling experience is getting lost, I think. And to some degree, I mean, that sounds very arrogant to say when I hear it out loud, but there's something about the importance of the, the human experience resonating and vibrating in real time, in real space, uh, that's getting, in some ways, harder. Harder to sit through, harder to show up for, harder to get off your phone to experience, um, harder to tolerate the, the resonance of it. Uh, and so I think now more than ever, it's so important to train theater artists to be live storytellers. Yeah, so, I say to my students all the time, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Like, you got to, like, put your head right. down and get ready for the long road. Because yeah, that's I mean, the so difference between being a theater maker and being an interpreter. An interpreter is like a mm -hmm. six-week job, eight-week job, maybe, you know. True. But the theater maker is a lifetime. I, you know, I always point Absolutely. out to them that Degas did a thousand versions of The Dancer. And there's only yeah. one in the museum in London, you know. But he did a thousand of them. Being a theater artist is definitely a marathon. <laughs> I love what you said about, as an audience, sharing space with a live human performer and physically feeling that human voice. It reminds me of something similar that another guest, Felipe Fournier, said about musical vibrations having a physiological effect on our body. Live performance is such a primal part of our spirit and psyche, going back to our ancestors gathered around a fire telling stories. So, Kate, before we go, let's play a game of first thought, best thought. I'll ask you a question, and I'd like you to respond with the first thing that comes to your mind. Question one, what's inspiring you right now? Uh, gender issues. Okay, next question. Name three theater artists you love. Well, Moises Kaufman, Tony Kushner, and Carol Churchill are the first three that came to mind. And finally, please fill in the blank. Art is? Well, the first thing that came to my mind was important. Art is important. Kate, it's been great to get to know you better. I've had a lot of fun sharing stories and asking questions together. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much. All right. Take good care. You too. Thanks. Well, everyone, I hope that, like me, today's conversation brought you inspiration and insight. Please explore CTC's website to find out more about our artists and projects and to sign up for our mailing list at convergencescollective.org. Questioning Artists is produced by Kate Michael Gibson and Jeremy Williams with collaborative consulting by Kalita Davis. 
Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Jaworski. Visual imagery was created for the show by Natalie Loveland. And the conversation you just heard was recorded November 9th, 2018. Until next time, friends, I send you all the best for the questions you're asking, the art you're making, and the connections you're creating to bring more light into this world. Thank you for being part of the collective conversation.